Well, good morning. My name is David Zavadil. I am a chaplain here in the Tennessee Valley Presbytery. Before I go get any further, though, let's address the elephant in the room. Yes, I am wearing a suit. Uh, the only reason I'm still wearing my suit after coming in and seeing how overdressed I am is I spilled coffee all over myself on the way here, and it's covering up the big stain. Uh, but I am glad to be here. Uh, I was a member of this presbytery from 1998 to 2006 on the other side of the presbytery in Kingston, Tennessee. Uh, and then in 06, I moved to Virginia Beach, Virginia to pastor Eastminster Presbyterian Church there where I was pastor there for uh, 17 years. We moved back uh, in July, first week in July of this year. Uh, little backstory: I was clerk, uh, the original clerk of Tidewater Presbytery and uh, had decided uh, a year or two ago I was going to start to visit all of the pastors, the preachers, uh, TEs who were not in a church, the RUF guys and the chaplains and whatnot. And I was having lunch with uh, a gentleman named Brian Fowler, who's chaplain for a company called AGI, Architectural Graphics Incorporated. And uh, go back even a little bit further. Uh, my oldest daughter, when we moved to Virginia Beach, she stayed in the area and lives in Knoxville now, and our two grandchildren are in Knoxville. So I'm talking with Brian, and Brian's telling me about the company and what he's doing, and he says, we've got an office in Knoxville, and we're really looking for a chaplain to go there sometime soon. And I said, well, I'll be praying about that, and went home and was telling my wife about all about this lunch I had with this guy and this company that has chaplains in their company, and and uh, and they've got an office in Knoxville, and they're looking for something. She said, you're going to take it, aren't you? And at that point, he hadn't even offered me. He, had, uh, he was just telling me about it. Uh, but anyways, we began talking about coming to Knoxville, and in July, we moved to Knoxville for me to work as a corporate chaplain with Architectural Graphics Incorporated. All of you all know our business, though you don't really realize you know our business. Every time you pass a Taco Bell, a Pizza Hut, a Kentucky Fried Chicken, every one of your banks, all of the car dealerships, we do all of that signage. Uh, we are... I guess the nation's largest uh, sign, uh, signage, corporate signage company. And I am the chaplain for the Knoxville office. I have 180 employees underneath uh, my care there. Uh, I've also been charged with taking care of our remote folks, so another 180-ish uh, folks uh, who are working across the country uh, remote. And then uh, just this week was also charged to go and help our our part-time chaplain in Cartersville, Georgia, with the plant we have in Cartersville. So I uh, do a lot of care for folks and a lot of ministry. It's exciting. It's been fun. It's been uh, probably the funnest two months uh, I've had in the last couple of years. And that's not to say I hated the, the ministry, the pastor. I loved it. 30 years as a pastor, uh, it was time for a change. And I'm enjoying the the time I'm getting one-on-one -on -one with folks and being able to help them deal with life issues. Uh, as I was telling uh, some other brothers in the presbytery, um, we've got, uh, in our particular office, I've got 180 folks. Most of them are 30 and unders, dealing with multi-million dollar accounts every day and dealing with life issues and, and searching and looking for wholeness and wellness and whatnot, and I get to be there to help them find that. Uh, and I'm, the job allows them to talk to me and me to them, and it, it has been a fun and exciting um, past couple months. I, want, I have come, and I want to share with a passage with you that uh, is 
a powerful passage in my mind, but it's also one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to uh, the book of Zephaniah. If you're not familiar with Zephaniah, if you go to Matthew and turn back three books, that'll put you there at Zephaniah. And we're going to be looking at one verse out of uh, chapter 3. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. And if you will, uh, stand in honor of the Lord's word and let me read this passage with and for you. Hear now the word of our Lord. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The grass withers in the flower phase, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen and amen. Please be seated. Let me uh, have a moment of prayer with you. Father, I pray that you would take this word, that you would apply it to our hearts today, that you would increase our faith, and Lord, that you would bring comfort and strength to us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, if you're not familiar with Zephaniah, you're going to get a crash course in the uh, the minor prophet, Zephaniah. Zephaniah was writing to a people who were struggling with trial. He's writing in the midst of what we call the Babylonian uh, exile, right at the beginning, actually, of the Babylonian exile. He grew up during the reign uh, of the evil king, Manasseh, but now he's writing during the reign of the good king, Josiah. And if you're familiar with the history of Judah, they were ups and downs, and there were good kings and bad kings, Manasseh being one of the worst, Josiah being one of the best. Josiah, however, was the king who uh, was the, uh, at the beginning of what we call the Babylonian exile. He was the king that had to lead Judah into this period of, of trial and tribulation that the Lord had told them was coming through the other prophets. And yet Judah, like Israel, had not cared to listen and so did not repent and thus are now at this time beginning to experience uh, an invasion uh, by the enemy hordes coming in to take uh, over their nation. Zephaniah was a contemporary of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. And while Isaiah resided in the court of the king, Zephaniah was actually related to the king in Chapter 1, verse 1, we read, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, if you're familiar with uh, the genealogy that we just read here, his great-grandfather, Amariah, was the younger brother of Manasseh and the uncle of Josiah. So Zephaniah is related to the king, a distant relation, but still related to the king. And whereas, as I mentioned, Isaiah resided in the the court, Zephaniah was part of the court. Josiah was the 16th king of Judah and, and reigned for over 31 years. And he's known as the good king because he found the scrolls of Scripture in the temple and and began to institute a series of reforms to restore Judaism to to Judah, to try to bring them back to faith. The problem that uh, occurred was while Josiah's reforms were a positive step forward for the faith of the people, he didn't go far enough and eradicate the paganism and the heathen worship from from the kingdom. Judah never fully saw the blessings of God because in the end, they did not love the Lord in all their heart and with all their mind and with all their strength. 
Isaiah was already writing about the coming judgment, but also in his writings he wrote of the full restoration. Jeremiah also writing at this time, uh, in chapter 7 of Jeremiah, writes about the, uh, the, the, the blessings and the good that came from Josiah's reforms, but through the rest of the book talks also about the coming judgment to be seen and the coming invasion of Babylon. And if you're familiar with the book of Zephaniah, he begins by writing of that very same judgment, this coming to the people. He then writes, as did Jeremiah, of the judgment that will come to the nations, particularly Babylon. And Zephaniah closes out this book by taking a different turn. For in chapter 3, he begins, closes this book with some exhortations about the last days and the restoration of the kingdom. This, spec, this section speaks not only to the end of the exile, but it speaks to the coming, the final coming, and the return of the Messiah. And thus it speaks to us. Chapter three of this book, this letter, is a chapter of hope and promise for the people of God. A source of comfort to those who are going through trials that all is not lost if your strength and your hope is found in the Lord. Many of y'all have probably uh, heard of some of the things going on within your own congregation. And in the coming days, this church is gonna endure some trials. I'm not gonna to lie about that. Some are probably thinking what's going on. You're probably already asking, what are we going to do? How will we make it? Where, you know, what about the pastor? What, are we gonna find a pastor? All these different things. How's the, what's the timeline? What's the schedule? I know I've been there on both sides. As a ruling elder and as a teaching elder, I've, I've experienced the trials that, that you will be going through. I've experienced the questions that you are going through. And I know that it's easy to, to just throw up your hands and say, I don't know what to do. I can't handle this anymore. But brothers and sisters, I, encourage, I want to encourage you that this is a time for a reformation of your faith, personally and corporately. A time to learn the lesson that Israel and Judah never really learned. That it's not about the leader. It's not even about the people, but it's about the heart of the people that God is focused upon. Like the people of God in Zephaniah's day. This will not be a time to, to turn inward. It will not be a time to cut and run. It will not be a time to listen to the external voices to surrender. But instead, this is a time to face the trials head on through, through the united faith in Jesus Christ. And this passage can be a help. In the midst of our trials, in the midst of your trials, you can learn from this passage by applying the promises that you find here in this brief passage. Look at, look at it again with me. Hear the words of the Lord. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What a beautiful passage. We see first in this passage the promise, the first promise of his presence. I love this passage because on one hand, it is the most powerful passage that, I, that you may be able to read in Scripture. And at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, it's one of the most beautiful passages that you will ever read in Scripture. 
Zephaniah begins this passage by, by giving you a picture of the triune God and all of his glory right off, the bat, uh, right off the bat. The Lord, our God. Now, the English doesn't quite convey the, the fullness of that, but uh, give me a minute and think about it. First, note the, the personalization as this is a call to faith. The focus is not on the nations or the lost. The focus is on you, God's people, the church, the people of faith, on each of us, you and me. He's not referring to the gods of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. He's referring to the God of Israel and Judah. He's referring to the God of the church. Though divided, though they were divided, he's referring to their God and to ours. The Lord, your God. Too often today we tend to think of God as way far off, non-personal. This spiritual being we can't see, smell, touch, or hear, who's, who's out there, we know he works, he created this world, he created us, we'll accept all of that, we believe all of that, but we fail to see him as our God. We fail to see the personal aspect of it. Jesus Christ made a series of statements in the Gospel of John that, that speak to the personal nature of the Lord. Listen to Jesus' words, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. In 8.12, I am the light of the world. In 10.17, I am the door of the sheep. In 10.11, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus Christ was saying to us, I am right here. I am your God. In fact, when you go back into the Greek, you'll find in each of those instances, he uses the divine name that we see God giving to Moses when Moses was standing before the burning bush and he asks, who shall I send? And the Lord says in the Greek Septuagint, ego emi, I am the I am. I am in your presence, I am your God. Second, we, must, we should note the divine name that's used here also, Yahweh Elohim. Zephaniah is taking us all the way back to creation, back to the very first verses of the Bible, evoking the holiest of names for God, but also the name that brings out the fullness of his Godhead. In Genesis 1.1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word... God in our English here is translated from the name Elohim, the plural form of El, giving us an early picture of the triune God, a picture that John builds upon in the first chapter of his book when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Genesis chapter 2, the very next chapter, we read uh, the full name of God expressed again, but just like here in this passage. Genesis 2, 4, there are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And in the day that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made the earths and the heavens. I want us to think for a moment. Think about this. Zephaniah here is wanting us to see that the creator God, the maker of the universe, is not some far off God you cannot know or see, but is the very God that you are to worship. Why? Because he is right here among us. The Lord, your God, we read, is in your midst. 
we read in the Gospels where two or three are gathered in his name. There he is in the midst of them. Picking up on this thought that Zephaniah is giving here. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. You've been sealed by Christ. Paul writes about this in the book of Ephesians. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When the trials come, and they will come, remember who is right here with you, seeing you through those trials. The Lord your God is in your midst. Remember his promised presence. But I also encourage you to remember his promised salvation. Look at the second part of this great promise. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. Not not only is the Lord your God with you, he is mighty to save. And I want us to think about that phrase for a minute. He's able. He's desirous. Nothing can keep him from his saving work because he desires to save his people. Redemption was on his mind since the garden. We all know the verse from Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first, the passages reminding us that God desires our salvation. And this speaks to us in two ways. First, in the spiritual, and that he is mighty to save us from the three S's, from sin, from self, and from Satan. He's both the source of our salvation and the means of our salvation. If you as individuals or you all as a congregation believe the satanic lie that you can get through your trials and your own strength, you will turn to self and you will fall into sinfulness. Don't believe any of the three S's. You need a savior. And not just any savior, you need a savior, the savior that is right here with you now. The Lord who is in your midst. The Lord who can save is right here amongst you. So don't go looking for greener pastures because there aren't any. The psalmist writes, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And the writer of Hebrews writes, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He desires to save He desires to redeem, and he is doing that work in and amongst you. The second thing we have to look at concerning the salvation is, is, let's look at it in its reality. This promise was given to a people under judgment. The Lord wasn't telling Zephaniah as he's writing this book, this might happen. The Lord was telling Zephaniah as it was happening, this is why it's happening. 
They were dealing with the trial. They were in the midst of the trial. They were dealing with a judgment that would exist, that would, spend, uh, that would overcome their lives for 70 years. For 70 years, they would be in exile with no place to worship, no teaching or leading in the faith. And yet when they returned, God was there for them and with them. How did they endure a seven-year trial and come away with faith? Because the Lord, their God, was with them, and he is mighty to save. As you prepare for change, this is not the time to think, how can we do this? The Lord, our God, has you in his hands. He has this. Instead of thinking, what are we going to do? Start thinking, what is God preparing us for? What does God have in store for us? What is God bringing into our life to bring him glory? The almighty God is in your midst and he is mighty to save. So let's rest on that. We see and apply the, the promised presence and his promised salvation but I also want you to see and understand his promised rejoicing. That's the hard part for us to see, I think. As you look at the rest of this passage, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We find three propositions that are really mind-blowing if you think about them. We often think about our worshiping the Lord, our love of the Lord, our adoration of the Lord. But in these three phrases, we see just how much the Lord loves us, you and me. And when the trials of life hit, we can turn to these promises for comfort and for strength. Zephaniah in this passage creates for us a sandwich of praise. When my wife, Kathy, and I met at the Presbyterian Home for Children in Talladega, Alabama, she was the house parent for the youngest children, and I was the first male they'd ever hired in 150 years as a, as a house parent for the oldest teenage boys. And uh, we met there, and, and, and uh, we had one date before we got married, and, uh, but we got to see each other every day in the dining hall and on campus and on trips and whatnot and got to know each other. But uh, where am I going with this? Well, we had a training session where all the house parents and the social workers were together, and it was a training session on how to deal uh, with a crisis within, within our houses or with, in dealing with the kids. And at one point, the, uh, our, uh, the, the lead social worker was sharing with us about how to, how to present negative news to a child in trauma. And we were encouraged to use what he called the Oreo method, Surround the bad news with encouraging words and good news. When we look at this passage, what we find here is Zephaniah uses the most Oreo method. Have you seen those out there? I found a stash at Ollie's a few weeks ago. The most Oreos are great. They are the Oreo cookie with three times the amount of cream stuck in the middle of them. The, the number of calories in a single most Oreo is that of four regular Oreos. So if you're counting your calories, you only get one at a time as opposed to four or five at a time. But if you haven't tried one of these things, they're great. It's a guaranteed sugar high, 
And we find the Lord here using Zephaniah, through Zephaniah, using this most Oreo method. He sandwiches a promise of love between two promises of praise. And to make it even more appetizing, he uses a chocolate cookie and a golden cookie to make the sandwich there by using two different words to, to describe the rejoicing, but each of these words building upon the other one. And I know we're heading towards lunch, so I promise I'll stop talking about Oreo cookies and we'll focus on the passage. So in the first phrase, this first proposition we read, he will rejoice over you with gladness. Here we have a picture that we're all familiar with. The proud daddy coming into work after his child's birth, passing out cigars and showing anyone who will look the endless pictures of his baby being born and, and the baby with the little, the little headband and the baby wrapped in the blanket and the baby with the baby with the bottle and all the pictures. Imagine the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, so excited over you, his child, that he's gushing over you with joy just talking about you. Like the father after the newborn is wanting to tell anybody and everybody all about you. Can you imagine this? Jesus Christ is saying about you, there is Stan, a man after my own heart. There is Linda, a woman after my own heart. And just bubbling over with joy. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this passage, writes, the conversion of sinners and the consolation of saints are the joy of angels, for they are the joy of God himself. The church should be the joy of the whole earth, for it is the joy of the whole heaven. Brothers and sisters, this promise will happen. He will rejoice over you. The second phrase we read, he will exult over you with loud singing. Now, it's not the second in the order. It's, the, it's actually the third in the order, but it's the second phrase, the other cookie, if you will, of the most Oreo here. And he takes a different direction. In the first phrase we saw, he speaks to, to everyone of his joy over them, words of praise. God will speak words of praise over us. And here, he shares acts of praise. He's going to sing over us. I remember the scene, I'm currently attending Christ the King Church in Knoxville, and Nate Zander, the pastor there, is a big fan of, uh, of uh, the Lord of the Rings and has a quote almost every week of some, something from the Lord of the Rings. And so this is uh, my quote for him. Actually, it's not a quote for him, but my illustration. Uh, actually put in here well before I even knew Nate had that pen, uh, tendency. But anyways, I remember the scene from The Lord of the Rings. I believe it was the third of the movies. Uh, after, uh, Samwise Gamgee and Frodo are walking through the forest. And Sam asks Frodo, do you think they will write songs about us? And they go into this, he goes into this discussion about the songs. And you can almost hear the song being sung as it's going on. Songs are important to us all. They, 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 they make an impact in our lives. We all have a song or two that we remember from various things. I, I uh, referringly, ref, uh, jokingly refer to Frankie Valley's song, Oh, What a Night is My Birth Memorial. 
as I was born December 21st in 1963, and if you're familiar with the song, it, it begins, Oh, what a night, late December in 1963. Uh, we won't go into the rest of the song because it actually has nothing to do with my birth. But songs memorialize. Songs strike the memory. Songs lift up. Those of us who are married, we think about, you, you remember the first song you danced to with your, with your spouse. You remember the song that was played as you were walking down, down the aisle out the church. You remember the music, and it touches your heart. And here we read that Jesus will lift us up singing songs over us. How often are we encouraged to sing a song in Scripture? We actually heard one in the prayer today. The psalm, I will sing my praises to you. There's eight verses in the Old and the New Testament that speak to our singing a new song. But this is the only verse in all of Scripture that says God will sing over us. This is the only place where we see God taking the action of singing the song to us. But now let's talk about the cream in the middle. He will quiet you by his love. I don't know about you, but when I'm facing trials, my mind is racing everywhere. One of the blessings that's happened in the, the last two months since our move here and starting the new position is while the, my responsibilities are different and there are certainly the pressures there, my stress level has gone from way up here to way down here. My mind isn't racing like, it's used, like it used to and, and whatnot. It seems when, when, when I'm under stress, it seems like everything is magnified a thousand times and my mind is racing all over the place and my stress grows. But then when I come back and I look at this promise and I want you to look at this, I find calmness and quiet. He will quiet you with his love. The Hebrew word we find there, yacharish, God's quieting. Or better yet, God's deafening. It's not a negative in a negative removing of all hearing, but it's, it's used in a positive of blocking out that will all that will bother you. God will quiet our hearts and our minds by blocking out the noise of the world and everything else that keeps us from focusing on him. Picture not our hands over our ears going, I can't hear you, but God's hands over your ears saying, I'm going to quiet you. I'm going to protect you. Though the external sounds are blocked out, you can still hear his singing reverberating through you. And he does this by his love. As a father gushes with joy over his child, he also will do anything to protect that child. Why? Because he loves him or her because they are flesh of his flesh. They are his child. Now think about this, this phrase, this whole passage in the context of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then also within uh, the context of of Romans 5, 8. 
but God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is so powerful that it blocks out all the other voices calling out and saying that they can help us, that they can redeem us, that they can save us. It's what, it's what the eye in the Calvinistic tulip is talking about, God's irresistible grace. When God's hands are upon us, there's nothing that can take us from his gracious hands. That when the trials are coming and they're hitting and they're buffeting us and, are, and we're wondering what's going on and how we're gonna happen, we can hear that song. And we know that his hands are there and they will cover over and block out all of the trash and other things that we're hearing and let us know and reminds us that God is with us for the Lord our God is in our midst. He is mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. When God's hands are upon us, there is nothing that can take us from his grace. Or as Jesus put it in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Brothers and sisters, precious people. If you get nothing out of today's message at all, take this home with you. Memorize this verse and meditate on it in the coming days. The Lord is your strength and your comfort. Please do not ever forget that.